And again, I'm Pastor Dave Mitchell, and uh, I'm the old guy they just uh, referenced just a little bit ago, and so it's good to be with you. And uh, look forward to studying God's Word together. I encourage you to take your Bibles in hand. We're in a series in the book of Romans. Romans is one of the great, great New Testament books. They're all great, I guess we would say, but uh, there's something very deep and abiding and rich about the book of Romans that really covers the gamut of all that we are as believers and followers of Jesus Christ and all that God would want for us. And so we've been in that journey. The first uh, 12 chapters or 11 chapters all about being set free by Jesus Christ through our sin and our salvation, our sanctification, the sovereign rule of God. And then starting in chapter 12 to the end, chapter 16, we've been in a series called Live Free. So we've been set free so we can live free. And so this morning it's all about living free and living free through difficult love. I'm going to read the text. There's an outline that's available for you as well as we always do, and then there are some very practical next steps that, uh, Lord willing, we'll have time to look at on the back side of that as well. Let me read just the three verses, just three verses here this morning. In Romans chapter 13, verses 8, uh, uh, verse, uh, yeah, verse 8, 9, and 10. I had to remind myself. In Romans uh, chapter 13, verse 8, it says, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you should not commit adultery, you should not murder, you should not steal, you should not covet. And if there's any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And there's a bit of a repetition there, but uh, I was greatly intrigued by this whole topic of love. We actually talked about it a few weeks ago as well. But uh, here's a picture. I was just reading through some stuff uh, about a month or so ago. Here's an actor, Philip Seymour Hoffman. You may have seen him in something. I can't remember what he's been in. But he's an awfully familiar-looking, oh, uh, awfully familiar-looking guy. And uh, here's what I read about him. That's intriguing to me on the whole topic of love. Here's an actor, pretty successful in his own right, uh, recognized uh, throughout the community in a variety of settings, probably well-to-do financially, well-to-do in terms of notoriety. You would think he has everything that this world has to offer. And he talked about uh, playing a role in the death of a salesman. And he talks about the role of the person that he played And he says, the role had a very personal influence on me, Hoffman said. It really seeps into why we're here, what we're doing, family, work, friends, hopes, dreams, careers. What's happiness? What's success? What does it mean? Is it important? How do you get it? Ultimately, what gets you up in the morning is to be loved. Now, the tragedy of all of that is to be loved that in February of 2014 this year, he died of a heroin overdose in his apartment. And you think, that's about as desperate as it comes. As he is echoing this demand for his own personal life, the ultimate thing is to be loved. He himself, obviously, was very diminished and depleted in that area. It shows the power of what God is talking about when it comes to Romans chapter 13. He also, in 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 13 as well, on the whole subject of love. So I wanted to break this passage down. The value of the love is the fulfillment of the law of God. 
I don't think there's a lot of newsworthiness in that. If you didn't know that, then we probably have other things we need to be talking about, right? If we didn't know that God says the most important thing you can do for someone is to love them, then we sort of have blinders on that reveal some maybe deeper issues that need to be addressed. He says, owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. So there is no debt, but we're always indebted to people around us to love them. Very clear. And then he says, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. The law referring to maybe the 613 commands of the Old Testament or perhaps the Ten Commandments of the Old Testament. He references four of them here in this passage. All of us can do what I'm going to talk about today. I can do it. I'm not perfect at doing it. You can do it. You may not be perfect at doing it. But the things we're going to talk about are the things that can take place because something happened when we became followers of Jesus Christ. For those of us who put our faith and trust in Jesus, these things have happened. And that is this. We saw way back in Romans 5, 5. Hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. God's love is in every believer. The Holy Spirit takes that love, He packages it, puts it in our heart, and then for you and I, we reveal it to those around us. And in so doing, we fulfill the law. That is what God calls us to do. Here's the challenge that's going to echo throughout the rest of what I want to talk about. First John chapter 4, verse 20 says this, If someone says, I love God, and all of us probably, if I asked you to show your raised hands, do you love God? You would say, well, yeah, I'm not going to say I don't love God. If someone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. Not a liar about hating his brother, but he's a liar about saying that he loves God. Why is that? For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Those are important words, obviously. There's a lot of us who really struggle with loving certain people. There are certain situations and circumstances that God puts us in where it's extremely difficult to love certain kinds of people. But if I'm not loving them or I'm hating them, the word hate means to to have a malicious intent towards them, was somehow to leverage points against them. If I am living in a way that disregards someone as to who they are no matter what they've done, then if I hate that person, I cannot also claim to say that I love God. That's very challenging. So you think about the people that in your sphere, people that, that you can't forgive, the people that you're angry with, the people that you just won't let this sort of this thing go that they've done to you, that you harbor in your mind ill will to certain people. Think of who they are. How do you look at them? Are they people that you, some people would describe as hate? Well, if we hate those people, then the Bible says, I, I don't love God. I can't do both. Uh, there's this duplicity that comes to certain people that they think, I can hate that person by never forgiving and being always angry and resentful towards them, but I'll surely proclaim that I love God. And God says, no, it doesn't work that way. I don't count that as loving me if you can't love your brother or your sister. So that's what's going to echo throughout this passage. Now, when we come to the rest of the passage, 
the people that we're supposed to love put us in difficult circumstances. And he lists these four of the Ten Commandments. You should not commit adultery. You should not murder. You should not steal. You should not covet. Now, I was reading this. I tried to come to grips with why in the world did he choose those four of the Ten Commandments? Why didn't he list all ten? Or why didn't he just reference the, the Ten Commandments, the law? Why did he specifically choose those four? Well, when you're a student of the Word, not just a reader of the Word, when you're a student of the Word, you bombard the Word with questions. And one of the questions you should always ask is, God, why did you include this? And God, why did you not include that? Why is this here in this context? And what relevance do these verses have on the surrounding verses that are there? Students of the Word constantly, it should be autopilot that you're constantly questioning not the veracity of God's Word, but the inclusion that is part of God's Word. Why are those verses there? And so I ask myself this question all week long. I'm not sure I fully understand it, but I'm going to give you my best guess. Why did God choose those four commandments? I'm going to break it down in just a minute. Here's the rest of the passage. And if there's any other commandment that is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. And so we land on these four behaviors, if you will. There are four violations of love. Adultery, murder, stealing, and coveting. Why did God choose those four of the Ten Commandments? Because those four are listed on the side of the Ten Commandments, the upper half, six to ten, of those things that are social, those things that are relational. Of those latter half of the Ten Commandments, He chose these four. I believe that these four present to you and me some of the most difficult people to love and some of the difficult, most difficult things to overcome in loving them. So God says, if you're placed in a position where you have to love an adulterer, or you have to love a murderer, or if you'd love someone who has stolen from you, or you have to love someone that you covet from, then you are placed in some of the most difficult circumstances to have to love someone. So God says, I'm not challenged by loving people that are very lovable. As I referenced a couple of weeks ago, we've got this little dog, uh, Scotty Terrier, when every time we come home, she's as happy as could be, and she is extremely easy to love. That's in contrast to Jessica's cat that is extremely hard to love. So we have these individuals or animals, as the case might be on this stage here as well. We have things that God brings into our world and He says, if you can love people who have broken those four Ten Commandments, you're loving some of the best love that anybody can love. So let's break down each of those four. Adultery. Adultery is probably one of the most devastating things for a spouse to discover about the other spouse, be it husband and or wife. Here are some statistics that come with adultery. 41% of one or both spouses admit to physical or emotional infidelity. 41%. We're talking about almost half of the marriages that are out there in the world today that either physically or emotionally have attached themselves to someone other than their spouse. 
70%, 17% of men and women admit to infidelity with a brother-in-law or a sister-in-law. And I can't imagine the devastation to realize, with my sister-in-law? And how painful can that be on top of just the pain of adultery itself? Other statistics. 36% admit to an affair with a co-worker. 35% admit to an affair on a business trip. 74, and this is astounding to me, 74% of men and 68% of women say if they would, they say would commit adultery if guaranteed to not get caught. 74% of the men. I hope that's not true in this room. It's just astounding to me that there are that many men in the, probably America, that have that mindset. And I hope it's a whole lot smaller in this room. And the average length of affair is two years. And here's something else I discovered, and uh, I was reading, researching this, and this is how I discovered it, not because of any other reason. I felt like I have to put a real quick disclaimer on this. But there's a website out there called Ashley Madison. Don't write it down. And Ashley Madison is a website that their slogan is, Life is short, have an affair where you can go and find other spouses of other marriages who are looking to have an adulterous relationship. And at the very bottom, you may or may not be able to read it, it says 26,670,000 anonymous members. And they said their four, be, you know what their four busiest days on this website are? Christmas, Valentine's, Mother's Day, Father's Day. That's America. That's our neighbors. Those are the people we work with. Outside of Jesus Christ, that is the, <laughs> that is the momentum of sin, moving people away from God's morality and holiness and into their own self-indulgent, adulterous relationships. Jesus Christ spoke on the issue of adultery because He knew it was such a big deal and hard issue to deal with. You have heard it said that you should not commit adultery. But, and here's the big but, I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in her, his heart. And here is the challenge, that if I say that I love God, I better be able to love other people around me in the, in the appropriate way. But if I'm in a relationship that is adulterous, either emotionally or physically, there is no way that I better ever declare that I say that I love God. I cannot love God and find myself in this relationship, as I'll show in a moment. And, and so if I am in a relationship where someone that I love, my spouse, has committed adultery, and it's going to be the hardest thing in my mind to ever have to say this, that if my spouse has committed adultery and God is calling me to love everyone, even those who have committed adultery, Lord, you've placed me in an awful situation because I hate my spouse for what he has done to me. And I understand that. And I don't know if there's any number of us in this room today who have committed adultery, physically have committed adultery, not just emotionally. And I know it's been one of the hardest things you've ever had to work through. And they're the most challenging situations that your spouse has thrust you into. And your kids and your grandkids, as the case might be, having learned about that or having the hardest time in the world learning how to relove someone who has been such a betrayer of their mom or their grandma or their aunt or uncle, whatever the case might be. I know how hard that is. And I know that's a journey that you've got to go on. It's a journey that's going to take a long time. 
And it's not going to be easy. And it may take years before you get to the point where you can say, I now, I now love this spouse again. We've seen it just in the relationships that Joy and I have had in a personal way. We've seen it in sort of the ministry way of people in our church. We've seen it beyond the walls of this church. And it's devastating. One of the challenges that we always come to in an adulterous relationship that is like this is to help the spouses somehow learn to love each other again. That's our goal. Because if the spouse cannot learn to love the betrayer, if you will, and God means what He says when He said, if you hate your brother, you can't say that you love God. That's a challenge. That's hard to, to sort of work that in, right? If we believe God's Word and we're followers of Jesus Christ, we take His holiness serious, then I've got to somehow come to grips with that. And this isn't a heap Pain on top of pain. I don't want to do that. That's why it's so critical that we get to the point of saying, I'm going to relieve myself of the anger. I'm going to find myself into the forgiveness so that I can finally say, I love Him and I also really love God. We want to bring people to that point. But we know it's a journey. It won't happen the next day, the next month, maybe not even the next year. But it's a journey that we want to take people on. But beyond that, I also say to those of us who may be at our place of business, 24-hour fitness, Gold's Gym, walking down the street, running through Peter's Canyon, wherever you may be, if there is an emotional attachment that is coming to a man or a woman that is out there, then you are becoming as guilty as the man or woman that you know that physically became involved with another person. So Jesus says, I'm not letting people off the hook who have an emotional attachment to someone other than their spouse. How do you avoid adultery? Here's one verse that probably a lot of us have never looked at before. And I don't mean to put us all down, but it's because it's hidden in the book of Job. A lot of us have our time reading all the way through the book of Job. But I found this verse this last week, and it was very enlightening to me. This one verse, all by itself, if I obey it completely, I'll never commit adultery, physically or emotionally. When Job is being challenged by Job's friends, Job defends himself. And when he defends himself, notice what Job says that is the cure-all for adultery. He says, I have made a covenant with my eyes. That is with his wife. I have made a covenant with my eyes. And my covenant is with my wife. And my eyes and I, we agree that how then could I gaze at a virgin? This word gaze is not to sort of glance over there because there's something attractive going on. And it's hard for, you know, if, if I see, uh, if I see, and I'm going to have to be very, very careful on this. If I see, excuse me, if I see a beautiful car driving, I saw two very old antique cars driving over this morning. And I thought, wow, I just, that's, that's amazing. Isn't that an amazing car? But I just kept on going. I didn't follow it. I didn't try to steal it. I didn't covet it. I, I didn't, you know, get emotionally attached to it. I just thought, oh, that's nice. Now, here's where it's delicate. Can I, can I do this? I don't know if I can do this. My wife's sitting on the front row. But occasionally, occasionally, even women, don't you occasionally see somebody that is physically attractive? It sort of catches your eye. Oh, wow. Okay. 
But then you keep going, right? Right? <laughs> Am I the only one? Because occasionally you have things, whether it's a beautiful car or a beautiful dog or, or uh, a beautiful person, they sort of, oh, wow, amazing. But then you keep going. That's not what Job is talking about because he, otherwise blind yourself, blind yourself. The word gaze is this. He says, how then could I gaze at another woman? When he's talking about a virgin, anybody but my wife. The word gaze, the Hebrew word, means to understand, to consider diligently, to discern. It is to enter into a, a fixation with this person where I am beginning to enter into this person's world, be it a man or a woman, whoever the adulterer, uh, alleged adulterer may turn out to be. And so what Job is teaching you and me is that when you begin to say to yourself, you know what? she or he at work at Gold's Gym at 24 Peters Canyon or wherever I find myself walking down the street, he or she I see on a regular basis and he or she I'd like to understand, I'd like to discern, I'd like to uh, consider diligently a little bit more about her or him. I am now crossing the line into an emotional affair and every affair begins with the gaze of the eyes. Every affair begins, I see you, I know you, I want to understand you, I want to consider diligently who you are, and I'm going to go deep into this relationship. Because emotional affairs then lead to physical affairs. So never begin the emotional affair. And here is the verse of Job 31.1. And for every guy or girl in this room who is battling this, you better obey this verse and stop the gazing. Stop it. Just don't do it. Just finish it and move on. I don't want to sound too trite, but sometimes you just have to stop what you're doing that is wrong. The reason why this is so devastating, or do you know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one with her, one body with her? For he says the two shall become one flesh, but the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. And the very simplistic thing that I wanted to draw from that passage is this that I can't love two people equally at the same time. I can't love an emotional affair person, husband or wife of someone else, and love my own husband or wife. I can't do it. It is physically impossible. It is emotionally impossible. It is psychologically impossible. It is spiritually impossible. I just can't do it. And so many times when we hear, hey, I've fallen out of love with my spouse, and I hear that, I've fallen out of my love with my spouse, the first thought that comes to my mind is, so who have you fallen in love with? Because we typically don't just reject the love with our spouse, we replace the love with our spouse. And so this passage is teaching us that the two become one flesh. It becomes this unique relationship that is singular. It is singular. You can't have the same love for two people. That's why if you read uh, King David, King David in the Old Testament, way back in Deuteronomy before there were kings in Israel, God says, okay, you're going to have a king. But what God said about every king is no king should have more than one wife. God made that a command. No king should have more than one wife. And so what happens? David becomes king and David has many wives. Solomon has many more wives. You know why King David and King Solomon's careers finished in misery? Because they were trying to love more than one woman. And it got him into big trouble. And the depth of that is Bathsheba. 
If you think that adultery is not that big a deal and you're gazing right now, you're gazing at somebody at work, at Gold's Gym or wherever you're at, if you're gazing at them, there's sort of this emotional fantasizing that is beginning to take place and you're sort of in the early stages of that sort of thing, you read 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12 and then ask yourself, how much of that pain do you want to go through? Because it is devastating to see a man that is a man after God's own heart get himself into Bathsheba's life and the devastation of tremendous consequential pain that comes from that sin. And that's why I constantly like to echo, and you sometimes echo it back to me, and I love it. You never find in sin what you enter sin to find, because you only find pain in sin. God's built the world to operate that way. And so that's why he says you can only love one person at a time. Every other sin, there's a lot of other kinds of sins a man commits. It's outside the body. It's different. Adultery is different. Adultery is different in this sense that adultery is the only thing that you can do and still live that breaks the bond of marriage. What's the other thing that breaks the bond of marriage? Death. God says there's two things that breaks the bond of marriage. Adultery and death. Romans 7, it's death. Matthew 5, Matthew 19, it's adultery. Adultery is that powerful that it actually breaks the bond of marriage the way death breaks the bond of marriage. It is that powerful of a sinful behavior. And so God says, I I don't want you to have to go through that. So I warn you, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, that you're not your own, for you have been bought with a price? Glorify God in your body. That's the mindset. He says, move in that direction. Let that spirit that is filled with you is God's love. Let that same spirit fill you with God's holiness. So you stop the gazing so it never leads to anything worse than that. The other thing that he talks about is murder. Jesus talks about murder. You've heard that the ancients were told you should not commit murder and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. We would all agree with that. We all like that. We want to send away murderers, and some people believe in capital punishment. We're all for that. Well, then Jesus goes on to say, and here's the other but. But I say to you that everyone who is angry, and I put O-R-G-E, which is the Greek word for orge, because I want to come back to that. Everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into fiery hell. That's Jesus. That's tough talking from Jesus. And this is this, uh, this uh, Sermon on the Mount that he's trying to set up his kingdom. But uh, I am drawn to the fact that I have never, and I, can, I declare this unequivocally, that I have, and, and this is my confession, I tell you all, follow my example in this. Do what I do in this, in that I have never murdered anyone. I never have. And I hope that I never will in the next least year uh, or 20 years, however long I should stand. I suspect that I will never murder anybody. In fact, I could almost predict with 100% certainty that I'll never murder anyone. Right? The problem is this but... But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother, I have had orge. I have had that problem. I have been angry with people who have done things that I think are either wrong or hurtful to me or to my family. I've had anger. So when Jesus says, okay, Dave, you've never murdered anybody, but now have you ever had anger? Well, maybe once or more. Because orge is this, anger orge. 
It's a couple of Greek words for, orge, uh, for anger. But orge is this abiding state of mind. It is long-lasting. And I'm constantly thinking about payback. Thumos is the volcano of anger. Thumos is the other word. Thumos is I explode, I splatter, and it's all over with, so can't we all just get along? Orge is I'm thinking about you, and I really resent you, and I'm really frustrated by you. I feel a lot of pain against you. I don't want you to do well. I really, really am angry with you. And I'm going to maintain this attitude of painful darts against you, maybe hoping that something bad will happen to you. But I'm never going to say it. I'm never going to explode in your face. I'm never going to throw anything at you. I'm never going to try to stab you. But I'm just going to resent the life out of you. It's orgay. And Jesus says, okay, you've never murdered, but do you do that? Then don't tell me that you love God if that is the way you live your life. Just don't tell me that. I don't want to hear the untruth of those words. That's strong from Christ. Ephesians tells us you need to fix it. Be angry or gay. And yet do not sin. So I will have that resentment against things or people. I'll have that. But stop it. Don't let the sun go down in your anger. Don't let the devil give an opportunity to that. Just you need to work it through so that it is no longer ongoing. Because God knows I will get angry. But I can get over the anger. And that's where the love of God returns into my heart. There's one other verse on this. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no one mur- no murderer has eternal life in him. So this thing of, I've never murdered anybody, but do you hate someone? I've never murdered anybody, but do you have anger that is abiding against someone? Those are relevant to mo- many of us in this room. Many of us in this room. And the whole idea of hate is to have a malicious and unjustifiable feelings toward another person. That needs to stop. As I focus on Ephesians 4, 26 and 27... I say, God, before the sun sets, I'm going to resolve this issue in my life. I'm going to make a commitment to you that I will cease from doing that. And I will repair the relationship with those that I am angry. If it is possible, as far as it is possible, as much as it depends on you, Jesus said, or Paul says in Romans, have peace with one another. I need to do something about that. Whether it's therapy or counseling or prayer, whatever it may be, let God begin to heal The other thing is stealing. Stealing. There are two ways that I steal. I'm going to go through the first part of this pretty quickly because I don't know how... Anyways, there's two ways I steal. I steal by what I take from others. We know that. I steal also by what I withhold from others. Let me give you two examples in Scripture. Employers can steal from their employees. He says in James 5, 4, But behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields, which has been withheld by you, cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabbath. Employers steal by not properly paying for the workers who did the work. And I'm not here to say who should get how much pay and minimum wage and all that. All I'm saying is that if I am not paying a worker worthy of his work, I am perhaps stealing from that person. The other issue is employees. They steal. 
urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters. Notice it's not just employees, it's slaves. It's incredible. Bond slaves to be subject to their own masters and everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering. He's your master, don't pilfer, don't take from him, but showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. Here's a couple of facts that might be of interest to you. Stealing time. Do you realize that employees or employers steal about $200 billion a year each year? $200 billion a year. That's incredible. Most of us don't make that much money in a year. And so it's just a really challenging number to realize how strong it is. Do you know how stealing time occurs? Number one way to steal time is Internet. 41% say I steal time. You know what the number one Internet spot of time stolen is? Facebook. Facebook. Everybody's posting, everybody's checking, everybody's following up. Facebook. How many people sit there at their cubicle or their office and the boss isn't looking and you're there on Facebook playing games and all the other stuff? I get stuff from people. I get notifications. On, I check Facebook about once a week, whether I have to or not. And I look, oh, I got a notification. Somebody must maybe send me a message. I'll push the little button where it says notification. Up it pops. And somebody says, you want to play a game with me? Stop it. I don't want to play a game with you. I'm letting you know right now. Don't send me that notification. Irritating. And I try not to do that on company time. <laughs> you know what the number two way of stealing from employers is today? Socializing. Pull up a chair, your neighbor at work. Hey, what's going on? What are you doing? Oh, not much. <laughs> if you're the boss, you want to. 23% say, I steal time from my company by socializing. Just sitting around doing nothing. Chatting about this back, Facebook, the Kings, the World Cup, whatever it may be. The third way that 6% steal time from their bosses is through doing personal business. While I'm at it, I need to pay this bill. Here I'm on the job. Let me pay the bill. Uh, let me finish that phone call. Uh, you got your cell phone right there. It's on company time, but you're talking to your friend. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we can be there on Friday night. Yeah, well, look. Stealing time. $200 billion a year. A lot of debt could be paid with that. We also steal from God by withholding things. This is a very powerful passage for me. Will a man rob God? I would say, I would never rob you, Lord. I would never rob you. How dare I ever rob you? When that offering plate is passed, that offering basket is passed, I'll never dip in and steal money from that offering basket. I'll never do that, Lord. I am so... I'm such a follower of yours. And God says, well, wait a second. That's not what I'm talking about. Well, the man robbed God, yet you are robbing me. Well, how, I've never dipped into the, you know, the, the little ba offering basket. But you say, how have we robbed you in tithes and offerings? You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. How were they robbing in, back in Malachi's day, like 400 B.C.? How were they robbing God? By not giving the way God gave to them. That's a major theft of God. That God has blessed me in a certain way, whatever that level of blessing may be, whatever that level of blessing is, that I am not giving back to Him according to the way He has given to me. And in that sense, God says, you're holding back on me. Because everything you have, I own, God says. I own it all. I am the steward. I am the manager. And God, you have entrusted this to me. And God says, yes, I have entrusted to you all that. 
And out of that, I expect you to give to me back. And when you don't, you steal from me. He says, it's mine, God says. It's all mine. And so I need to work in, 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 here at Covered Church, we're in a process right now. Uh, let me just say this. In the last six weeks, we've seen our offerings dip, and we don't know why. We don't know why. And all I would challenge us, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you're a member of Calvary Church, would you please evaluate? Are you giving according to the way God has given to you? Because some people are fearful that God will give to me according to the way I give to Him. And if I give to Him little, He may in turn say, okay, I'll give to you little. But sometimes when I give to God much, God then says, yes, I give to you much. Sometimes it works that way, not always. And so God says, I want you to live according to the way I've blessed you. And then the last thing is this, coveting. I'm going to move through this quickly. Coveting is the attitude where I'm not content with God's provisions. Coveting is looking at somebody else and saying, I wish, what they, I wish I had what they have. I wish I had their car. I wish I had their house. I wish I had their job. I wish I had their children. Um, I wish I had their looks. Coveting. We all understand that. But that's the attitude of saying, I'm not content with what God has given to me. My looks, my car, my house, my children, my body, whatever it may be. And so the problem with coveting is it creates this. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is it not the source of your pleasures that wage war in your members? I want something you lust and do not have it so that you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. It creates fights and quarrels. It creates this conflict in my heart and my relationships. And God says, you adulteress. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. In other words, coveting... See, here's the thing. Coveting is the root of adultery, murder, and stealing. Coveting is the undergirding of my heart that causes me to want to take from that spouse that spouse, to take from that life that life, to take from that possession that possession. Coveting is the root that drives the behavior of adultery, murder, and stealing, be it anger murder, be it hate uh, of murder, or uh, be it an emotional affair of adultery. Coveting is the root cause. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship of the world is hostility towards God? It drives me to want something that I shouldn't have of another person, um, taking another life and hating them in anger or literally taking from them or from God was rightfully theirs. I want to finish up with this. I want to applaud one of our own. I'm going to save the time. We'll come back to some of these things. But I want to show you an example, a positive example. I feel like I've been pretty negative this morning. But a positive example of what God has done in one person's life. In a moment, Victor's going to come back up here. Victor Estrada, one of our pastors, is a worship leader, typically in elevation, runs on sabbatical away, and uh, so Victor leads us. You realize that a couple of years ago, Victor Estrada was trying to sell uh, an Xbox. I think it was on Craigslist. So he set up an arrangement with a guy that wanted to buy the Xbox, so they go to a place that he thought would be secure, and he goes to sell this Xbox to this guy.
And as soon as Victor's there and a the guy shows up, the guy pulls out a gun and holds it in Victor's face. He says, give me your Xbox. Give me your iPhone. So Victor gave both of them to them. So he stole from him. That was, shows that this man, this, this man doesn't love Victor, right? So Victor gets his email. And I forget to, how he forgot his email, but somehow Victor found him. I th- might have been through Facebook or something like that. I don't, I'm sorry, I don't remember. But, so Victor emails this man who has stolen from him. And this is what Victor writes to this man. Hey, bro. I'm going to start calling people bro as well. I, I feel I'm more hip when I do that. Hey, bro. I deb- debated about whether I should send this email and wondered if you'd ever get it. If you do ever read this, I want you to know that I forgive you. It wasn't fun having a gun stuck in my face or being tricked like that, but I forgive you. I hope you're able to enjoy that system and that phone. <laughs> or I hope that you get what you need as far as selling it, and that's what you end up doing. You must have needed it more than me, uh, than I did, so you pull off something like that. I was telling your friend or your girlfriend that I'm a pastor to church here in Santa Ana. I'm sure you could find that out easily by looking through the phone and all the stuff that's on there. I know this is pretty unusual that I should be pretty upset, and there's probably no way in heck that I should be writing to you an email, but to be completely honest, I just wonder about you and who you are and why you feel you've got to do the things you've got to do tonight. This, is, this he wrote at 2 o'clock in the morning of that night. Anyway, like I said before, I forgive you. I'd love to have my stuff back, but more my phone than the Xbox because it's got a lot of my information about people and ministry and things that's going to happen. I know that and I accept that. Just know that I don't know who you are and I don't know anything about you, but I'm going to be praying for you the rest of my life. I promise you. I'm not going to hold this against you either. I don't know if you believe in prayer or not, but I'm going to be praying to God that God blesses you in great ways. That being said, I'd love to know who you are. This sounds crazy, but let me buy you a meal sometime. No police, no history, no strings. I swear to God that I serve, the God that I serve, that nothing will happen to you if you meet with me. You call the place, I'll pay. Also, if you want to return my phone to me, I'll give you 50 bucks. The information that is there on the phone is very important to me in my ministry. You keep the Xbox in, uh, you keep the Xbox. The info is what's important to me. Again, uh, same deal as before. No police, no history, no strings. I swear, you don't have to even show up. Give it to a friend and let them make the exchange. You know where I work. You know what I do. I'm not trying to save you to be a Jesus freak. I'm just trying to understand you and where you're coming from and how I can be praying for you. You can email me back since uh, I guess it's safe email for you since you used it. I would say that you could text me, but... You've got my phone, so that's not going to work. If you're wondering if I'm safe, you can Google me. Victor Estrada, pastor, Calvary Church, Santa Ana. I play the music for a living there. Anyway, I hope you actually see this. So the guy emails back. Hey, man. Not bro, but hey, man. First off, I'm really sorry. If I had any idea that you were a pastor, I wouldn't have done that. Well, we we should always wear our... 
I was just looking for some rich kid, and they didn't turn out to be you. About the phone, I've already wiped out the entire thing clean, so if I did give it back to you, it wouldn't have any info. I'm really sorry. Apple can help you with that, I think. I would really like to go to lunch sometime, talk about something. I won't rob you again, I swear. (laughs) And Victor wrote back, hey, thanks for getting back to me. I honestly didn't think you'd write back, but I was hoping so. Let me know when you want to get together and we'll do it. Like I said, you really want that Xbox that bad, you can have it, but I'd love to get my phone back. I might be able to get back some of the info on it. Anyway, give me a call, my office. He gives him his uh, phone number at the office. And then then one last portion. He says, bro, I already told you I forgive you. I'm not going to hold it against you. That being said, though, I did go to the police and filed a report. He says, look, I'm a 30-year-old pastor, and that means I'm poor too. (laughs) I'm married, and I have three kids. I was selling an Xbox for my family, and I wanted to get some extra money. I grew up in Anaheim in the ghetto, in lots of ghettos. We moved around a lot because my mom couldn't afford to stay in places for a long time. We lived in apartments, motels, our station wagon, five kids sleeping in a car. Most of you probably didn't know that. Victor was homeless portions of his life. And God has got a hold of him here. Most of my friends I had from then, being a kid, I can't talk to anymore because they're either in jail, dead, or overdosed, or just got swallowed up from the ghetto. It's a way of life. You either jump into it, it's hard to survive, right? I hope you got some good money for that stuff. I'm still praying for you, bro. How about I take you to lunch on Tuesday for your birthday? I would do Monday, but that's a family day for us, and I try to keep it for them as much as I can. And I don't know if you have anything planned for your birthday. As much as you're wondering about getting set up, so am I. I mean, out of the two of us, I'm the only one who got set up this week. Anyway, I had a friend lend me a phone. Here's the number you can call me at. I'm praying for you, bro. I hope today goes well for you. Here's an example of love. That's what love looks like. Stolen from, cruelly treated, no anger, no hate, no murder, no cheating. Just love. When God allows difficult people into our lives in difficult situations, God asks for us to live by the strength of the Holy Spirit that fills us with God's love, to love for them the way God loves us. Because people like this bro guy, he has lots of needs. They did arrest him. He did go to jail. But there's lots of needs in his life. And he needs people that can love on him. And we got people at work, we got people in our neighborhood who need us to love them. Whether adulterers, murderers, stealers, or coveters, God says, love them. Doesn't mean they don't have consequences, but love them through that to bring them to Jesus Christ. Let me pray. Father God, I thank you that you have given to us a measure of hope that there are situations and people that do things that are really difficult and painful for us. Thank you for Victor and for his illustration a couple of years ago, a few years ago, of love in action, forgiveness where there could have been hate, where there was love where there could have been anger, where there was love and there could have been resentment and revenge. Thank you, Father, that you have given to us, each of us, by the Holy Spirit who resides in us, a capacity to love like that as well. 
Father, I pray that we would never be an adulterer, that we would never be a murderer or a hater, that we would never be one who steals from others or steals from you, and that, Father, we would never covet but be content with what you have given to us. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.